0: Welcome to Small Talk with Raincraft. I'm Subha, a leadership and executive coach. And I'm Hasita, I'm a marketing strategist. We're just two people who love to talk and love to learn. And this is us being curious about the world around us. Join us. Welcome, small talkers. Today, we're all going to get a little bit smarter as we deep dive into the world of artificial intelligence and so much more. With me is Kashyap Kompella, the CEO of the global technology industry analyst firm rpa to ai Research. Kashyap is also a best-selling author, a writer with numerous publications, an educator, and an AI advisor to leading companies and startups across the globe. Kashyap has been recognized as one of the top 10 global thought leaders on artificial intelligence and digital transformation. He's also one of the top 10 most innovative global AI executives. He brings a wealth of knowledge in this space. So let's dig right in. Hi, Kashyap. Good morning. Welcome to Small Talk. Thank you for being with us. Really looking forward to a very enlightening discussion today.
1: Good morning, Subha. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Kashyap, I'm going to start with your career journey, and actually, even before that, your educational journey, because that itself is a very, very long list, right? So, you did your engineering at BITS—that's how we know each other. You went to ISB. You were were at the CFA Institute, at the National Law School doing a master's, and so much more. So, how do you manage so much?
1: Well, that's just embarrassing. See, there was no grand plan. It's just a few happy-go-lucky decisions that that sort of worked out uh, well. So I got into consulting after MBA and as I was working on different kind of projects, I thought it was useful to have uh, sort of a multidisciplinary knowledge. So I ended up uh, getting a few other diplomas and degrees like, like you mentioned. But uh, from a career itself, I think I was lucky to have graduated at a time when the software industry was taking off in India. So it's sort of being in the right place at the right time.
0: True. I mean, many of us were uh, like you at the right place at the right time, but you caught on to the field of artificial intelligence pretty early, right? When did it all start? So
1: let me take a step back and give you some context. See, right now, I'm an industry analyst. So that means I try to understand new or emerging technologies how they're likely to evolve, when and how to use them effectively, etc. So that that's my job. So I say that it's like being a management consulting where you're specializing in future technologies while being underpaid. <laughs> so that's my job. So a big part of my job description is learning. So we used to have an elective course called Neural Networks taught by Professor El Behra. This was in BITS 25 years ago. So that was my first uh, introduction to that field. That's the first time I heard of that. Then uh, in 2010, I think, yeah, in 2010, about 12 years ago, my friend and colleague Prabhash Thakur, who's from IIT Bombay and who you also know, he's a classmate at Accelerate, I think. So in 2010, Prabhash and I explored a startup idea in computer vision. So at that time, the AI technology was not ready for prime time or what we had set out to build. So in a sense, we were a bit early, but that was my sort of Reinitiation re-initiation into the field of AI at that point in time. So we tinkered with it for a bit and after that, when we realized that the product market fit was not going to be there, we moved on to other things. And for the last 10 years, I've been a technology industry analyst. And more specifically, as the current wave of AI advanced, I've been focused on AI and automation for the last five years. That's my AI stint or AI journey.
0: And uh, if I'm not wrong, you also are in the space of kind of teaching AI, right? Making it more accessible to folks like me.
1: See, that, that sort of happened. Like, as I started learning about different things, some of what I learned, I mean, why don't I try and share with others as well? So that led to a lot of writing, teaching, and even advising uh, startups. So I, I teach in a few engineering and business schools. And... Uh, I write a quite quite a few columns. I write about four or five columns in different Indian and foreign magazines and newspapers. So that that's the thing. So one of the strengths that we have as a firm is being able to explain technology in simpler terms. And we felt there was a need, need, need for it. So we kept doing it.
0: Oh no, there's a definite need for it. And I'm going to lean on you for that now too, right? Like an AI for dummies, if you will, just to help a lot of us We think we know it in certain small pieces. And we do end up hearing a lot about other companies, like you said, friends and colleagues who are either building something or working in the space of AI. And honestly, beyond a point, we do wonder what it really is all about. What is it that is so game-changing? And some of the things that we hear just feel like kind of maybe glorified automation And I'm not saying that with any judgment, but what is that artificial intelligence? Because the two words are so strong and powerful that maybe our expectations are also very different. So for lay people, what is AI and and is it very different from what we maybe understand a little more, which is machine learning, that you kind of teach a machine by giving it data and letting it learn from that. So is this very different and how do you see it?
1: No, no, not at all. No, I think you, you have the intuition uh, downright. And a lot of uh, what you say is actually very expert-level takes. So <laughs> you don't need any AI for dummies. Better uh, see, let me ask you a simple question, okay? So I'm going to give you a series. And you have to fill in the next thing in the series. Say 5, 10, 15, 20, 25. So what comes after that? 30. 30, right? So that that's exactly what the current AI that we have does. So let me elaborate. It seems simple, but it's... Uh, as simple as that to give you an intuition. So there is a set of data here, it happened to be a a series of numbers. And then you identified a decision rule fairly quickly, that this series of numbers is increasing by five. So now you extend the same concept to different data types and huge amounts of data. Here, the decision rule is quite simple. But when the data is like say 1000s of variables, you cannot easily intuit that decision rule. So once you are confident in your decision rule. I'll explain this in a, I mean, in a simpler way, but just, just go with this for now. So once you're able to intuit what is the decision rule for different business or other situations, you can make those predictions and act on those predictions. So right now when businesses operate, they also make all of these decisions. But these decisions are probably made by people like us, human experts. But as you gain confidence in the predictions, you can automate those things. So that's the kind of automation that you're talking about. So that, in some cases, can lead to reduction of waste, better customer experience, a lot of regular software when you use, what are the benefits that you can expect, you get those things. So taking this simple concept and applying in different situations, just like you are able to predict the next number in the series, given a user's profile, their shopping behavior with us, can I recommend the product that they're most likely to buy next? So that that's whole set of shopping recommendations, extend that to content based on what this user has watched so far on Netflix. Can I predict the next show that they're likely to be interested in? Can I, like on a music platform, can I predict that songs are likely to descend? So you, you apply the same concept across different situations, if it's in a banking, retail banking lending situation. Can I assess your risk profile? Right now, I think we do that, say using a credit scoring mechanism? Can I get better at arriving at that credit score using some of these better data, more data? So that drives a lot of decisions like a percentage of interest, should I give you a loan or not? What percentage of loan? And what should you be your interest rate? So it, it sort of lends itself to very many applications when you're able to take patterns from data. So the field of AI itself is probably about 50, 60 years old, six, six decades almost. And it keeps coming and going in waves. These are called uh, AI spring and AI winter, when the interest in AI wanes, that's the winter. So now there is a lot of confusion about what exactly AI is because the AI that we see in movies is very different from the AI that we see in our day-to-day lives, right? So science fiction movies, they, project a view of AI as artificial general intelligence where like this AI is all powerful, has emotions, feelings, it decides good, bad, etc. But what we're actually building is narrow intelligence. That means we take all this past data that we have with us and apply some fancy computer science techniques to it and then predict the decision rules. So it's good at say handwriting recognition or it is good at detecting patterns in speech, identifying uh, the objects in images or people in et etc so it is very narrowly focused on doing one specific thing so if we used to be able to try to do these things what are the techniques that we have used have changed throughout the course of these 6 decades uh, that i talked about so when we were in college there was a a lot of interest in something known as uh, expert systems something known as fuzzy logic different techniques i mean we didn't need we don't need to go into the details of these things so machine learning The definition of machine learning is learning patterns or learning by examples. So the examples that we show the algorithm to learn are called training data. So you use data to train these algorithms. We always were pretty good at doing this thing for tabular data, rows and columns. Like Think of a spreadsheet or think of a table in an Oracle database or something like that. We were able to do a lot of predictions out of that kind of tabular data. But in the last 10-15 years or so, we have gotten good at identifying patterns in unstructured data or semi-structured data. That's images, written text, speech, videos, etc. So with these kind of capabilities, now the current state is that we're able to decode all of these unstructured data and are in a position, loosely speaking, uh, to imbue the computer with a lot of senses, like sight. Computer vision is like we're giving computers or devices sight or speech recognition devices or smart speakers, they're able to decode what we say. So based on these things, they can predict the decision rules and they can act on these things. So it opens up a lot of possibilities in terms of automating things that previously required manual intervention. At the same time, because we have so much computing power at our disposal through the cloud or through more powerful servers, and because of increased digitization, we have a lot more data at our disposal. So combine these two facts, and we are in these narrowly focused tasks, the algorithms are getting better at the precision for these predictions. Like if I give an image, say in the field of image recognition, it is able to identify objects after being trained in that image. So that, that lends itself to very many applications. So in narrowly focused tasks, these algorithms are approaching human level of performance, which is roughly about say 90 to 95%. But the difficulty is that an image recognition algorithm is trained for a very specific thing, while uh, humans have like thousands of these kinds of skills. Like, I can identify, say, images in pictures, but I can also do something else. I mean, decode different languages. Like, a speech recognition system that is trained in English, for example, wouldn't be able to recognize speech in Malayalam, but a human can do all these things. So, I hope that gives a sense of what AI is, where we're at in this. Uh, space. I mean, I, I sort of uh, covered a broad ground. gown, but to summarize, I'll say, when you, whenever you see AI in the news these days, they're referring to a branch of machine learning called a deep learning, which uses a technique called artificial neural networks. So that is uh, almost always when they're talking about AI, that is a dominant way we're doing AI these days, so that they're referring to deep learning. What is AI? AI is simply a piece of software. What is a neural network? a neural network is a, a data processing structure. It takes certain inputs, and it arrives at a specific set of outputs, which help us to give some predictions. So the problem is, it does not give like humanly intuitive or understandable decisions at the end of it. But it gives a say, some, some sort of numerical outputs, which we need to translate, interpret and apply into our business workflows and decisions. So, AI is equal to software. It is not like a thinking, all-knowing, all-pervasive, all-human, whatever, and all-powerful things that you see in science fiction. Neural networks are nothing but data processing structures.
0: Got it. And I think that really simplifies it and makes it more accessible to so many of us. I think the my next question would really be, showed the thread or, or how it has evolved, right, from expert systems fuzzy logic we went to ml and now it's ai what's next what how how would you see this evolving as as an industry analyst what do you see coming next and is this whole hype around meta a part of that
1: absolutely that's a great question as an industry analyst i mean a big part of my job is actually keeping a tab of what's coming down the road but in reality what happens is the things that we talk about now are actually being implemented by companies 10 years down the road five years down the road 10 years down the road so despite all the hype the it's still very early days for ai when i talk to organizations right now i mean be it in india or outside of india the bulk of their money is going towards things like cloud putting their technology estates be it hardware or software into the cloud 80 percent of the budgets more than 80 percent of the budgets for most organizations is going towards the cloud and very small percentage of that is actually going into new things like AI. So that's one nuance that that's usually missed out in the nonstop coverage of AI by the media and the press. So the transition to the kind of automated futures, the kind of more wider adoption of AI, that is going to happen over the next 10 to 20 years. We've already made a lot of advances in deep learning and now we have some of these ingredients. I likened them to the senses of a computer viewing a 5th and five and 6th senses to a computer. So implementing that into our businesses and organizations, that is going to keep us busy even without any more advances for the next 5 to 10 years. So now this metaverse is an interesting thing and it shot into popularity all of a sudden when Facebook renamed itself as Meta. So the context I think behind this is, uh, I mean, we've never thought we would have a trillion dollar market capitalization company because trillion dollars is a lot of money. India's GDP right now is like $2.6 trillion or so. So now we have companies like Apple, companies like Microsoft, etc., who have trillion-dollar valuations. And they have been able to... Apple became the most profitable and most valued company in the world because they were able to put a phone. I mean, even Google, I think. I don't remember their market cap, but I think they have more than a trillion dollars because they put a phone or a computer in everybody's hand. So now where is that next trillion-dollar opportunity going to come from? So they're betting that tech titans are betting that the next trillion dollar opportunity or a huge opportunity is going to come from putting a VR headset on your head. So where where is the next trillion dollar opportunity in the next 10 years, 20 years, etc. To give more context around the metaverse. So the metaverse, the name itself is uh, from a 1992 science fiction book called Snow Crash, which is uh, likened to... The metaverse is a virtual world that is projected onto headsets or goggles worn by users. And they're free to choose their avatars or virtual identities. So today, the metaverse is curious because it's already here, but it's also the future. It's tough to define and everybody has their own definition. So there is also a lot of opposition to big tech, which is like the Googles and the Facebooks. So the big tech embraces the metaverse because it's a trillion dollar opportunity. But opponents of big tech also embrace this thing. So I'll explain all of these things in just a bit. So to give a working definition of a metaverse, it includes several elements from Neal Stephenson's conceptualization, where like the physical and the digital, they blend seamlessly. So it's also a shared experience, it's an immersive experience. It's also persistent, like you you get out of the metaverse but there are still people in the metaverse. So it combines the augmented reality, virtual reality, video games, social networks, and uh, interestingly, even blockchains and cryptocurrencies. So the basic idea is that the metaverse is you provide like rich, multi-sensory, multi-dimensional digital experiences. And also it's not just about technology, but it's also about culture and economics as like mentioned about blockchains and uh, cryptocurrencies. But if you think about it, I mean, I- I've been looking at this space for a long time. So there are elements of gamification, A rich online world with digital avatars and virtual goods, that's not exactly new. You may remember the buzz around uh, one of the things called Second Life. It was a virtual world that was launched in 2003 and it still exists today. So today, if you see about the metaverse, there is a lot of hype excitement saying people are buying land in the metaverse. People are uh, opening embassies, having concerts, universities are opening their campuses in uh, metaverse, etc. And exactly all these things. Happened in Second Life as well. They bought virtual real estate, musicians held concerts, brands opened retail outlets, and so on. But despite the hype, they like the Second Life, it continues, but it did not attain mainstream adoption times. So that naturally leads us to ask what's different now? First, I mean, we've made tremendous advances in uh, virtual reality handsets. And we're also talking about coming out with 5G mobile networks, giga bit speed internets, and all that stuff is available. We also have high-end powerful computers on each desktop where all these 3D worlds can be easily rendered. Next, uh, this concept of a metaverse is being championed by companies with big pockets. So Facebook is spending like billions of dollars on virtual reality and augmented reality and apps in 2022 alone things. So Microsoft has acquired games publisher Activision Blizzard for about $69 billion, which is their largest acquisition so far. And media has plans, Apple is planning its own uh, headset etc so people are willing to bet big money on uh, making this metaverse happen this time we'll we'll see whether it happens or not also video games have moved from uh, niche to mainframe and then people are spending a lot of time because of the pandemic also they're more used to digital experiences and whatnot so where the crypto guys come in is that uh, the crypto guys say that we are generating all the content for facebook and other social media google and other social media companies but we're not getting paid for it in that sense, I mean, it's become like we're working for them for free. So they say, let's create a metaverse where you get, I call that the crypto metaverse. The two key ideas of the crypto metaverse are that it introduces the notion of digital property rights, which are stored on the blockchain and users get a share of the profits because of whatever they are contributing. It's not mainstream yet. And I think our audience would not be very interested, but one difference is that the kind of metaverse is that Apple's and Facebook's are envisioning they require some sort of a headset while the Crypto Metaverse really doesn't need a headset. So that's the Metaverse and AI, I mean, there is a whole bunch of technology that is required to make this Metaverse come to life. And AI is involved in each of these technology pieces in different ways. So I, I could go on, I mean, I, I teach a half day course on Metaverse, so you have to stop me.
0: No, clearly, and, and there's a lot of interesting nuggets in in everything that you say, and, and, like, and every sentence can kind of uh, go forward for a deep dive. But coming back to, I like how you explain Metaverse. So is it that let's say in the near future or in the foreseeable future, you might say, okay, I went for an IPL match, but you never really went. Yet you had the full experience of sitting in a stadium with people you don't know and probably feeling the sounds and the sights and the excitement in that live environment because of this virtual headset and everything. So you were there, but you were not really there. So you went to Egypt and saw the pyramids, but you never really physically went there. So is a lot of our life going to be lived on our couch, but claiming that we're everywhere else? See,
1: that's the vision that tech overlords are pushing. But uh, there are a few practical difficulties before it happens. For example, these headsets are not very comfortable for people who wear glasses. It's getting there, but it's not comfortable yet. Then uh, if you're looking at reality, what reality is the real world, what happens is when you move your head in a particular direction, your brain expects something will change. But when you wear a virtual reality headset and if you're moving actions, there is a dissonance between what your eye sees and what your brain perceives. So that gives dizziness. So there's a lot of physics behind it. So they're they're taking care of that, but this dizziness depends on your center of gravity, which is different for people with different heights. In general, women are a little shorter than men. So all the tech bros are building these virtual reality headsets. And uh, there is a thing called uh, cyber sickness. Just like motion sickness, we have cyber sickness when you wear these virtual reality headsets. So the VR headsets have a gender problem there. So that needs to be solved. Like I said, like people with vision defects or people with say, so they're solved they're making accommodations in the sense they're making space in the virtual headset for say people who wear glasses but what if you have bifocals so all these things need to be thought through and to deliver the kind of experiences that you mentioned so it is possible to have uh, say a music concert or a sports event where you're hanging out with 50 people because of the limits of technology because you need to stream that much you can only stream that much video because of bandwidth and device limitations etc. But that will keep getting better. You'll be able to hang out with hundreds, thousands probably, and point will come when the devices are powerful enough that you will uh, hang out with even the entire crowd. So that that is an easier problem to solve over the period of years. Moore's law, et cetera, will help us uh, get there. But there are these other issues that I talked about, cyber sickness, and what if uh, people bully you in cyberspace, et cetera. We're only getting to realize the dangers of those things. All those have to be solved. But yeah, like I said, that's why it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen the next year, but it's an evolution over the next five to 10 years.
0: I think that brings us to another important aspect of a lot of this, which is data and decision and algorithm based. And I know you do a lot of work in ethics around AI. So two things come to mind, one is who defines these rule sets and who defines how this will work and the clear example that you gave that already women and those with certain disabilities or challenges, we'll have to see how to accommodate or fit them in. So And if somebody is not thinking about that proactively, it could get missed out because the group that's sitting in the room and doing all this, it really depends on how diverse they are or what their thought process is. And second, in for all of this to really be useful for me as a consumer. And this is something we joke about in our groups that when I say something on WhatsApp, I see an ad on Instagram for the same product. But we need to be willing to or be okay with putting out so much data about ourselves or at least acknowledging that whether we do it willingly or not, people have access to it. And are they using it in the right way to serve me better by giving me better recommendations? And how could they possibly misuse it?
1: Right. So that's a very complex question, frankly, because the argument is that it's very uneven. For example, we keep talking about, uh, say, personalization because of data. You give us your data, we'll serve you better personalized. You won't waste your time, you'll have a better experience. But all of us are also familiar with getting calls from the banks in which we have accounts saying, hey, do you want a loan? So it makes me wonder, I mean, I keep reading about all these things saying uh, there is predictive maintenance. I'm talking about the consumer experience types. So predictive maintenance where like we're going to equip all these what is it, equipment, like say an elevator in your building, we will going to, before it uh, fails, we're going to come and repair it, etc. But I have seen so many instances where there is a, a lift or an elevator that has not been repaired in months and weeks and uh, similar things keep happening. I mean, you check for something like let's say you're interested in going on a holiday in say some some place you, you check for flights for that or whatever for the next one month you keep getting advertisements for hotels and this, and this happens even after
0: no you're right the consumer experience honestly hasn't lived up to the hype so far there are some spaces where like you said immediately you feel the effect you see hotel recommendations because you chatted about goa on a whatsapp group and you see hotel recommendations and you say okay it is kind of useful for me and I'm not going to crib about it too much. But sometimes you see things which you really didn't expect because you, you spoke about something a little private to you and you don't expect to see ads for, I don't know, a mental health product or something like that. And I also see the other extreme, like you mentioned. For example, I am a very, very frequent user of Audible for audiobooks, etc. So I keep getting their, uh, I think it's a weekly or fortnightly emailer and for the past, I kid you not, for the past two years, despite the wide range of books that I have been downloading and listening to, I see the email with the same four books on the header image. There is Atomic Habits, there's Alchemist, there's (laughs) Psychology of Money. And I think one more and I'm thinking it's been two.
1: Did you buy those books? They're going to show you the same ads till they buy those books. A
0: couple books. of them I've actually downloaded on an Audible and read and a couple of them I've bought in physical which also I mean if you're so great Audible should know from Amazon that I bought it. So some of those experiences you, you makes you wonder where is the AI? It, it could at least it was supposed it promised me better recommendations but that's not happening. So yeah, there is I guess still some way to go in the terms of the consumer experience.
1: Yeah, see the consumer experience, I mean, definitely is improving in many places, but it's improving in bits and pieces, and only in advertisements you have seamless types. So what it is enabling is it's enabling uh, what do we say, some sort of semi-personalization at some scale, and there is also economics involved. These people have what do we saw All these companies, big companies at least have microeconomists running these experiments, example of telecallers not knowing it's easier for them to just throw people at a problem. And if somebody converts, it works for them. So the economics work out that way. Same with the advertisements, but the specific instance you gave could be because there could be some bug where something is not getting refreshed or because Audible's catalog in India is limited. So they're not able to come up with the recommendation or something could be broken sort of a thing. But in general, yes, I mean, I think of the attitudes, like what kind of data privacy do we need or what kind of data privacy we get depends on the expectations. So Pew Research Center does a lot of uh, surveys towards uh, attitudes towards technology. In India, for example, India is the most trusting of AI or technology in general. Like in the US, about 45, if I remember number, 45 to 50% of the people have uh, mistrust uh, or they don't trust AI highly. While only 12% in India think that AI is a bad thing. So countries fall on a spectrum. So we are very trusting of technology in India. So that is going to inform people's attitudes in general. I mean, we're, we're talking broad brushes about what kind of data they're willing to give away in terms of experience. But also, I think I have seen anecdotally that attitudes change based on what's your age profile. Young people, younger people seem more okay because they're into this sort of sharing a lot more information than somebody senior maybe, senior citizens may be comfortable with, etc. So there are a lot of issues. And in general, uh, technology leads while regulation and our attitudes towards that lags. So I mean, we were talking about these, these are fairly complicated issues. But for example, when the pandemic broke out in India, people wanted to work from home. But regulation has been set up in such a way that the government had to amend some rules which allowed people to work from home. For people who are working in in SCZs so or software export zones and other restricted zones types, so we we solve those kind of issues only now. So these are going to take a lot of years to work out the issues and whatnot. But but I think there are other harms of AI. One is like they're not delivering the customer experience that we're hoping for. But there are other harms uh, of AI that 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 we should be considered about. I mean there are. I'm not going to talk about uh, what are all the good things uh, or what are all the tremendous opportunities and potential when AI is used well, because that's what the rest of the industry, the rest of everybody is shilling you on that. There are some things which are not getting enough attention. And I'm thankful uh, to you for giving me this opportunity. So AI is a dual use technology. That means you can put it to good use and you can put it to bad use. So the same autonomous vehicle capabilities, autonomous flights, uh, that we have, they, they, they can be used in warfare, for example. AI being put to bad use. Then the same AI can be sort of uh, used by bad actors. You can use AI to improve cyber security and defense, but you can write, use AI to write better phishing emails. You can trick people into giving away their information and credit card information, click on uh, links, uh, etc. compromise links, etc. By using AI, so it's available to both the bad, bad actors and the good actors when I mean, we can't do much about it we need to educate the users I mean auto-generated content uh, this easily, more easily spread misinformation disinformation have deep fakes etc. So because it's uh, horizontal technology that's applicable and available to everybody so that's AI in for wrong uses. AI in the wrong hands is one type of risk. Then but more commonly more prosaically another risk that you've alluded to which, which comes up in your questions is uh, We're hyping up AI before it's ready for the real world. So we talked about, uh, let us say, the impression, the popular perception, somebody who hasn't looked deeply into these things is uh, because it is using massive amounts of data, because it is using uh, pretty complicated mathematical techniques and huge computing power compared to humans who have their limitations, the amount of data they can process, etc. AI is much more accurate than humans. That is one misconception. Next is... uh, it is more accurate than what it really is. Say we keep seeing uh, accuracy levels of 95%, uh, when reality probably it is much lesser than that, that. It's 60%, 70%, somewhere depends on the task. But depending on the training data, the accuracy falls can uh, the accuracy levels can fall very dangerously low to for certain groups, say for women or for minority groups or whatever
0: it is we see these problems in let's say hiring today right because i do a fair bit of work on the women coming back to work or uh, mid-level folks who are trying to change industries and spruce up their resumes etc they all know that there is some kind of tool that this is going to go through before a human sees their resume and there are so many pitfalls in that how is that algorithm set up really to look at things that can't really be explained in clear words and timelines?
1: Absolutely. There's nothing wrong in uh, say technology being only 50% accurate because we will get better. Or, But the danger really when you hype up before it's ready for the real world is that 50% technology is uh, being implemented left, right and center thinking it is 95% technology. So a lot of people ask me, what is AI ethics? AI is If you say AI is a piece of software, why does software have a piece of ethics? I mean, what is ethical or unethical about it? So you wouldn't implement, say, like if you're buying a regular car, if it starts only 80% of the time, you wouldn't buy certain categories. I'm not saying 80% is the right number or I it depends on product category. For example, a medicine that works 80% of the time or a vaccine that works 80% of the time is considered pretty good. They monitor it thinking they're knowing that it's only 80% of the time. So this is the mismatch that is uh, right now uh, happening in different domains in image. Say if you have exam proctoring systems, if the facial recognition system has to recognize you before you can do an exam, if it falters because you don't have proper lighting or if your skin color is darker, you're not taking those things. And a lot of examples are there in uh, say in India, we're using them for determining the beneficiaries of welfare. The government gives out a lot of welfare schemes who gets it. So we're using a lot of data for that. This is being used across the world. So if there are defects or if there are problems in those algorithms, if we know we will have the exception handling mechanisms, we'll have human in the loop or some other safety mechanisms to ensure for that. But if you go in thinking this is going to solve everything, then people will be caught in this automation hellhole. So this this happened, I mean, I'll give you an example from Netherlands. So Netherlands had uh, some sort of an algorithmic system which determined who should get child welfare benefits. So all of this has played out very publicly and all the data is available, so using that example. So this went on for years and this created the hassle for so many families because, uh, say, if somebody had a twins, the algorithm flagged them saying, hey, your claim for child welfare benefits is fraudulent because you're claiming twice the system. The system did not accommodate for that kind of situation. Finally, it ended up that uh, People in low-income uh, families, people who were migrants, etc, were being disproportionately targeted. And because of fraud claims, the government also put in systems uh, saying that they flagged some people as having fraudulently claimed benefits and wanted to claw back and said, give us back the benefits that we paid for the last five years. They didn't give them any grace or I think put them in prison. Thousands of children were uh, separated from their families and had to be put in orphanages. They imprisoned a lot of people. Some people even committed suicide. this. This created I mean, a huge crisis. The Dutch government actually resigned because of uh, their lack of oversight over this algorithmic system. See, we talked about data privacy, right? And Netherlands is a country which is actually part of the GDPR. They're subject to the GDPR, which is one of the most uh, stringent data privacy regulations, data privacy and protection. So even the Dutch uh, GDPR authority find the Dutch tax authority who was uh, was overseeing this thing. So this has led to a lot of rethink about how do we really use AI systems, what kind of mechanisms we need to put in place so that people are not adversely impacted, etc. But we're still learning. So this is the field of uh, responsible AI or ethical AI. And one of the thinkings that is emerging is that just like we have third party audits of financial statements. We need to have independent third-party audits of uh, high-stakes AI systems. So this is giving rise to the field of AI audits. And I'm happy to share that I'm one of the first uh, certified AI auditors in India.
0: Awesome, yes, I saw that. And And very recently, congratulations on that.
1: So this is a field that we see is going to become more important as we learn more and more about the impact of using AI. So these are some of the risks that we need to watch out for. And also then the last thing I'll say about risks is that what do we really use AI for? So a Facebook executive had a famous quote which said, the best minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click ads. <laughs> so we're taking all these, I mean, highly qualified, trained computer scientists and uh, researchers trying to see how they can get us to spend more time online on social media or uh, on all of these uh, things instead of solving uh, some of the larger humanities problems we're facing or even things like, I mean, why don't we use this expertise we have to build say, an automated wheelchair which <laughs> which one of our friends is doing do things like that there is potential for all of that thing and those are the kind of things I wish get their time in the spotlight as well
0: no interesting I was just seeing and I think it was in the MIT tech review an article on how there is so much of AI tools that have been built during COVID but somehow they have not helped to make it better in terms of I think just forecasting, projecting, or even trying to make the whole treatment process and the triage process to improve that. And I was reading that a lot of tools have gone into it or a lot of AI effort has gone into it, but the results have not yet shown. So I think a lot of what you said is that, right, that our expectation of these algorithms and these tools is that, oh, if I've made something, it's performing at 95% level. And that itself is an unrealistic expectation. And we have to be mindful that hey, something is working only at 20, 30% level. And hence, the decisions that we are making based on that output have to factor that in.
1: Perfect. I mean, I'll give you three quick examples. Say 10 years ago, or maybe 12 years ago, IBM Watson was synonymous with AI. You would remember all those advertisements that IBM had, where IBM was using Watson for a variety of ways. But most importantly, they were going to solve for cancer, cure cancer, use AI to cure cancer. But IBM paid a lot of pioneering costs and they've invested i mean, billions of dollars into that. AI needs data. So they spent $5 billion acquiring that data. They had the best of the best partnerships in healthcare. They recruited, I mean, at their peak, they had 7,000 engineers working in IBM Watson unit. They bet the company completely on Watson AI solving uh, Healthcare and other domains, but very recently, early part of this year, they sold it off for a billion dollars. Watson, so that that's one thing. I mean, it's tough to solve. I mean, not to dunk on IBM, but I think they were also understanding what problems can be solved using AI or not using. And IBM's experience is going to help others in the field. Thanks to them for that. But these are the challenges of solving. So that's one example. The second thing example is the MIT Technology Review that you mentioned. I mean, in the last two years during COVID, the British medical journal has assessed systematically. Hundreds, if not thousands of COVID prediction models that have come in. And their conclusion is that not a single one of them is fit for clinical use. So that that's, uh, I strongly agree with what you say. Then the third thing is, uh, one of the greatest pieces of AI that we have today is language generation models. Open AI, is a GPT-3 is a classic example of that. So let's take Open AI. You give it a prompt, it will generate, I mean, content that is very tailored to that. I actually have written uh, four columns, four of my columns using the OpenAI GPT-3. So fantastic piece of thing. You answer any question, it will tell you the answer because it has been trained on almost, uh, I mean, a huge corpus of internet data. But the limitation is that it was trained on data till 2019. So when COVID hit, they released it in 2020, I think. When COVID hit, so everybody turned to, or whatever people had access to GPT-3, they turned to GPT-3 and would ask about COVID. So what are COVID precautions to be taken? What do you think of this, this, that types? So here is our most impressive piece of AI and it had no clue about the biggest challenge facing us at the time. So how how odd is that, right? But it also had some smattering because SARS-CoV-1 or the first coronavirus-1 was there a few years ago. So all the responses it would give would be based on SARS-CoV-1 and not SARS-CoV-2. So that explains the nature of our AI systems that we're building. They're very good at finding patterns in the data that they've been trained on. When they encounter something new, that's when the accuracy dip that you've seen that, that you mentioned like it falls from 95% to say 50% or even it's totally confused. So that, that's the situation but but I'm, I'm in general hopeful. I mean I'm talking I'm highlighting these aspects because these are not something that are given much attention to. This is very curious to me as a general observer because in our general human affairs The media highlights...
0: We're cynical, more cynical than we are.
1: In human affairs. But we have, I think, more optimism in technology. So, we focus on the upside of technology and don't pay as much attention to the downside. In fact, if you talk about the downside of AI, you're you're seen as like a party pooper and uh, not encouraging the efforts of uh, the people who are working hard, etc. I mean, kudos to all the people who are working hard, but as an industry analyst, my take is more on both the pluses and the minuses, so we can make more informed decisions.
0: I think that is and with some of the insights that you shared today I think that is going to be more and more important. Having a better picture even as a consumer where you may think that hey, it's not for me to get into this so deeply but I think it is to be more aware of just one what does it mean? What does it mean for me? And uh, yes, there is good stuff to watch out for. I am going to one day kind of watch a match from my sofa, really watch, be in the stadium, but be at home. But what are the pitfalls? And uh, very important to be aware of that. So thank you for some of the insights that you've shared today. So I'd like to wrap it up with those who want to get into this field, right, careers in AI, be it a youngster or a lot of mid-career folks who are obviously now, they've been in technology for some time and they know that if, if they want to continue working and survive and thrive for the next 10, 15 years or so, this is probably something they should know a lot more about. So how, how does someone go about it? What's the best way? And honestly, I'm, and I'm asking this because I see many folks doing a very basic online today. If you go to a Udemy for probably 500 bucks, you can get some two, three certifications on AI how to build with AI, how to do this and that with AI. And clearly that's not going to be enough. So how does one start? What's a good place to start? And does it even make sense for someone at mid-career to, to move to this now?
1: All right. So, so there are three questions. What are AI careers, youngsters and mid-career folks? So let's take each at a time. So to give some context about careers in AI, for example, there are roughly about 25 million computer programmers in the world right now. Because of increased digitization, because of like we'll have a lot more other things. Let us say we're going to double that number into the next 10, 15 years, we'll have 50 million total programmers. So that is still much smaller percentage compared to the world's population. So the opportunities are not just in AI, but the opportunities are going to be more broadly based elsewhere as well. And in AI specifically, there are going to be three paths. One is like you want to build the AI systems, you decide which AI systems to build, and then you manage maintain or use AI systems. We're not even talking about consumers, but these are the types of things uh, that decide which AI systems to build will be like investors, domain experts, and maybe the governments. So there's going to be a very small sliver of jobs of the millions of technical jobs, let's call these, they be. So building the AI systems, that's going to require uh, AI or computer science knowledge. These are the AI researchers, people who are doing PhDs and whatnot. And then you need to translate that and build that with software engineering, need domain expertise. So this is, again, going to be a small sliver of the jobs that are going to be there. But the bulk of the jobs will be to manage and use the AI systems. We talked about a lot of the examples, right? So what are the conditions in which uh, AI needs to be used? Is it doing right or not? Keeping an eye on AI systems and using AI in your jobs. A lot of the data science jobs fall into this category. You have all the data you're generating, uh, some insights for people to use, etc. So this is where uh, the three type of taxonomy of jobs are going to be. So depending on which field you want to go into, obviously, I mean, uh, when people say we want to get into AI, they're looking at getting a premium for their skills based on that. Naturally, I mean, uh, if you are in a position to decide which AI systems to build, you're an investor, if you're specializing in AI, you'll have a premium for your skills. If you're an AI researcher who has a PhD, so you don't have a PhD to get into the field, but if you have a PhD, you do different type of things. It's not like a monolith saying people are doing these things. So that's the kind of skills. So for youngsters who are still like, let us say in, in college or say just starting their careers. So the building blocks of these things would be maths, right? Maths, statistics, probability, calculus, linear algebra, programming languages, knowledge of machine learning methods. So you are not in a position at this point in time you're in college to have domain expertise, but you will pick that up with experience. But in general, outside of AI, i mean, this very interesting time. Because you can come out of nowhere, I mean, it's like a small town or a, a no-name institution and have a stellar career. And we have so many examples in India and outside of India of that. So you can really chart your career path. But it's also interesting, there are significant returns to be had if you're associated with a good brand types. There is a huge brand premium as well. If you're from IIT, BITS, I, M, I, C, XLRI, or from a brand name employer like a Google, McKinsey, etc., I mean, there are huge premium people are chasing after you for that types. So my advice is like, I mean, there is a lot of talk about for youngsters, you need to drop by, go through four-year college, drop out of college, etc. So if you have to drop out of a college, please make sure you drop out from a top school. So in general, youngsters should play the long game. So if you're in an opportunity to get into some of the good name brands early in your career, please do that because that compounds, that gives you returns throughout your career. So coming to the mid-career folks, I think you, you said something very interesting, some, some people who are stuck or stagnating in their uh, careers. So my take here is uh, when you're in mid-career, stagnation is a natural order because there is a hierarchy of organizational promotions and options. And as you keep growing, there are only so many jobs to be had, right? There are only like, yeah, there, there are only 5,000 CEO types, maybe. so. If you reach the director level, I think after that, a lot is beyond your talents. It depends so much on luck and other external factors, et cetera. So don't think that you're stagnating because I mean that that is uh, the natural order types. You'll be exceptional or exception if you go beyond that. So at that point in time, it makes sense to play to your strengths. It doesn't make sense to jump into a new thing like AI or some other thing. What will be in high demand is the understanding of the industry, the relationships the consumer pain points, what needs to be solved, etc. So that would really pay premium, I would think. Obviously, some sort of digital fluency or AI fluency, technical fluency is uh, important because that is the people you're managing will be those kind of people, perhaps. So, so you need the products you're building or helping, involved in building are those kind of things. So get that level of uh, fluency or that level of knowledge rather than uh, doing this thing. So there is a concept called T-shaped, professional, T-shaped professionals the letter T where the horizontal portion of the T is supposed to be the generalist skills while the vertical line of T is supposed to be the deep expertise that you bring in. So mid-career professionals can sort of take an assessment of what their T looks like and what they want to stack or what they want to add to that.
0: So, Makes sense. I think playing at any stage and especially after once you've been in a certain field or you've established yourself for a set number of years playing to your strengths is underrated but it's very very useful and important and uh, I think yeah you have to be cognizant of the fact that when you make these sudden jumps and shifts you are now competing with a much wider and probably much younger talent pool who can take bigger risks so you have to keep that in mind too
1: Absolutely. You should play on your terms. I completely agree with you rather than trying to compete with uh, much younger or I mean, you can compete with much younger folks, but that you need to know that types.
0: Oh, well, this has been wonderful. I can't believe we've been speaking for almost an hour. It just flew by. And thank you so much for really bringing it down to basics in a lot of ways, simplifying it and also contextualizing it for us uh, listeners. Because this is a space and I've been and I've been wanting to talk to you for a while because this is a space which is so in the news that you can't not hear about it on a daily basis. And we've all made a, our assumptions about what we think it is and what we can do. So a lot of clarity has emerged thanks to your insights.
1: Thank you, Shubha. I mean, it's my pleasure and been listening to your podcast and you've been putting together a finely handcrafted, a very niche podcast. So. All the best for that and hope to listen to future episodes as well.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening till the very end. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to leave us a note about the episode, please do write in at connect at raincraft.in or drop us a voice message at speakpipe.com raincraft all the details about our guest today and how you can find us on social media are available in the show notes so please do have a read and catch you next time